The place is being run by tossers. We, the voters, are the masters. The pumped up, self-important, preening politicians are our servants. The national disgrace was how our Vietnam veterans were treated when they returned home. Vote no as a nation, and we won't get a welcome to country again. Stop cheering. It's nearly not achievable without adding an extra $100,000 in the price of bill. It's because I know I'm right. Mm. I know that no man is a woman. I know that biological sex exists. It's binary. No human being can change their sex. Welcome to Parting Shots, the weekly roundup of the most important news of the week and highlights from ADH's coverage, which is normally co-hosted by me, Fred Paul, and Nick Cater. But Nick is away this week, so filling his giant shoes is none other than the man himself, Australia's greatest ever broadcaster, Alan Jones. Alan, welcome to Parting Shots. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Big shoes. Yes. Great man. Great man, Nick Cater. Yes. and we I, hit... We're not on TV, otherwise I'd rather put my vote no cap on. <laughs> well, thankfully yeah, we're not on TV because you're wearing a bright blue tracksuit. I am. So. I am. Pastel but we will be pastel, hearing from... Pastel, pastel, pastel Thank you, Fred. Pastel yeah, blue. Yes. Thanks, yes. We will be hearing from Nick Cater later on That's too. Good. So, but... Um, Alan, it's, a, it's been a huge week, I've got to say. Let's start with what today means. It's a solemn day for our Vietnam veterans. Now, this is the 50th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. 60,000 Australians served, 523 were killed and about 3,000 wounded. Now, 50th anniversary, Alan, you'd think it would have been a little bit bigger. I mean, you said in your show during the week, attitudes towards our our Vietnam vets, which were mm. re- reprehensible mm. at the time, have changed. But have they changed enough? No. Well, of course, you know, this is the problem, isn't it? Uh, the people at home forget those who were sent to serve and these men were sent to serve. I remember quite clearly many years ago, I because I knew Normie Rowe, who went to Vietnam, and that basically interrupted a really successful musical career, although subsequently he did wonderful work in some of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, um, Les Mis in particular. But I said, look, I'll get Normie up. And it was an anniversary of Vietnam. And uh, we'd only uttered two sentences and Normie couldn't go on. He was in tears. And these people came back and they were, as the RSL apologised today to acknowledge, they were ignored, they were forgotten, they were vilified. Some were spat on. Others were refused entry to RSLs because they said you weren't in a a legitimate war. The the anti-war fever... Uh, grew enormously. It was led by Jim Cairns, who was then the deputy leader of the Labor Party. And look, I, I think many of these people had honourable motives, but you had to separate. They, they didn't separate the protest concept from the soldier who was sent by the government to Vietnam to serve. These were the days when they believed about the domino theory and the communists were all coming down and we had to be there to stop it. And I, I was directed to write speeches about this sort of stuff which I didn't fundamentally believe in because I thought it was a bit overstated. Um, But nonetheless, that that was the mood of the day. And the protests in Melbourne, led by Jim Cairns and others, were just horrific and massive. When you think of the population then, I'm talking about 100,000 people marching the streets of of Melbourne against the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so these men who went were the collateral damage and so when they came home, they weren't acknowledged. They didn't speak about it. Friends of mine who went there have never discussed it with their family. Their children, in fact, for a long time, didn't even know they'd served. 
And it is a belated acknowledgement today and a sort of an apology, but too much damage has been done. Well, most of, some of them are dead. Quite, you yes, know. I mean, a lot of them yes, came back and, and suffered all sorts mm. of uh, substance abuse and so mm. on because, I mean, how isolated and yes, damaged very. could you feel? And it was a very emotional and traumatic thing it was. It a major was. turning point for the culture too, wasn't it, Alan? Mm. I mean, until then, you know, loyalty, sort of militaristic loyalty to the nation was, a, was assumed mm. and here was a major cultural movement saying right. actually no, you know. Yes. Yeah, and a lot of lot yeah. of fathers were. I mean, my good friend uh, who you knew, Bill Leake, his dad said to him, "Bill, Bill was just on the window of being conscripted," and his dad once said to him, "If you get that letter, I'll help you hide." Mm. I mean, that's what was happening in families it at the was. time. It's hard to imagine, it isn't it? Well, it was, but of course, it did persist, and though it wasn't to the same extent, but equally with Iraq and with Afghanistan. And this is my concern with the Ben Robert Smith stuff. Uh, in all of this, He's not just Ben, but many others. I've just written to one of them today, Oliver Schultz. Uh, these people were sent to war. They're amongst our best people. And I challenge all of these people who sit in judgment against Ben Robert Smith with one simple question. If you were there, and they've never, none of them have ever been there, uh, they've never held a gun and seen a shot fired in anger, none of them, but passing judgment on the circumstances uh, that these people confronted. And this is where Abbott, Tony Abbott is outstanding and he says, you know, it's no use sort of getting on your moral high horse here. This is a war and you don't quite know the good from the bad and when people are out there killing your own people, you would automatically take immediate action. And the campaign against Robert Smith led by rumour, rumour, mm. and yeah. thank God the matter is being appealed, but the man's the man's career is destroyed. Yeah, on the uh, flimsiest, on the flimsiest destroyed. premise. The father's a distinguished family. The father was a mm. chief justice, I think, of the West Australian uh, Court. I mean, a Supreme Court judge, a, a young man who was sent to war. But see, as in this business and in many businesses, there's a lot of jealousy. See, Ben was a corporal. Mm. Uh, he got a VC. Others were angry because they missed out. And we had an Australian politician who was in the same boat. Who, who I think. Uh, didn't behave himself in relation to this as one would have expected and he gave evidence against Ben Robert Smith and I understand that Ben was a, a factor in the interview process when he applied to be in the SAS. So there are a lot of factors at work here but at the end of the day we send these people to war. If we then go to say we'll, there's every likelihood we'll prosecute you when you come home, uh, yeah. then who, how, how are we going to get people willing to defend this country? And those people, the, the lefties who sit in judgment of all of this, that's fine. Will you go up and replace them? Many of these people, like Ben Robert Smith, had several deployments. Mm. The trauma of this is extraordinary. Mm. No one, no one should be made, should be deployed five, six, or seven times to the same theatre of war. No one. No. Let's let, let's talk about another reason or another aspect about why, whether or not people would fight to defend this country. And this is a fundamental one, Alan. Housing. Young people mm. are facing the prospect of say. probably never being able to buy yes. a piece of this country. Don't have a stake in their country. Don't have a stake. Well, why in would you be sent away to fight for it? Exactly. Yeah. So let me let, let me just segue to Na national cabinet met in Brisbane this week and discussed this crisis, which is ironic because Queensland is about to impose the most onerous restrictions on the building of new housing in Australia's history. Mm. Today, our ADH colleague, Lyle Shelton, interviewed his brother, Scott, 
who has been, had a building company in Toowoomba for 30 years. This is sensational stuff. He's, uh, his brother Scott, unlike Lyle, has never been particularly political, but he is now because he's rallying opposition to these new regulations, which will be introduced in, in Queensland in October and the rest of the nation is set to follow. Now, these restrictions, get this, Alan, will make all new houses, <clears throat> excuse me, disabled accessible. So you build a house with a few steps at the front. You've got to build a ramp. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and they will also be um, have these, these huge energy efficiency restrictions put mm-hmm. on them, like double glazed windows and mm-hmm. so on. Scott says this will add up to $100,000 mm. to the cost of a new house. Let's hear his interview, a grab from his interview. So it's, a, it's basically a twofold um, thing that they're bringing in. One is um, it's making every house uh, basically disabled access, uh, which is not a bad thing, um, but every bathroom, um, hallways wider. So it just basically means that every house has got to be made bigger. It's a lot of the smaller homes are going to be made bigger. The ones that um, identify as, you know, first homeowners that would get a, a typical first homeowner into a house. So, you know, that house has got to be increased by at least 20 to 25 square metres. And then the second fold is a energy efficiency side of things. So um, they're trying to make us all become seven stars, which for a lot of slab and grounds, uh, homes is quite achievable. But uh, out here where we build in volatile soils um, on timber floors and stumps, um, it's nearly not achievable without adding an extra $100,000 on the price of the build. And Scott also said that in the past three years, the cost of building a house has increased by 40%. Mm. So on top of that, the Queensland government, which claims it's trying to help solve this housing crisis, at the same time that National Cabinet is meeting in Brisbane to discuss this issue, they're throwing this on. It's just outrageous. Well, well, fundamentally, I think these things are are, are simple, really. Uh, Firstly, the politicians haven't got a clue. Uh, All they're doing is playing to the political gallery. One of the things that I think is could... could, The the issue of housing is very significant. I don't know, for example, how a young person... We're talking about young people here. How can a young person furnish the hex debt? And the hex debt is indexed. That's the first thing. If you wanted to do anything about enabling people to qualify for home ownership, you would not index the hex debt. That's the first thing. Now, it went up by 7% because of inflation, 7% in July. So here's a young person. Not everyone lives at home with their mum and dad. Not every mum and dad is rich enough to be able to sustain the daughter or the son at home. So they've got a hex debt if they've gone to university allegedly to better themselves, and yet the nation is penalising them for seeking to better themselves. Then they've got to pay rent somewhere and rents are extortionate. Then the banks who've just recorded billions and billions of dollars of profit say, well, we, we'll only give you 80%. And in the cost of money that the banks lend, there's a risk factor. There's no risk to the bank. If you go under, they become a real estate agent. They've yeah. got the property straight away. Well, the so banks have got the, the, together, the government guarantee as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right, underwritten by government. So at the end of the day, you can have all the talk in the world but you are still not going to be able to guarantee that the young person you're talking about that we're sending to war or to theatres of conflict will ever, under current circumstances, be able to own a home. He can't furnish 
is Hextet pay for it? He can't pay for rent and he can't find the $100,000 which he'll need to buy a $500,000 house which will buy you nothing. So he throws his hands up at the air and he said, well, don't ask me to do something for my country because my country's doing nothing for me. Exactly. So yeah. there, are, there are thousands and thousands of people and, of course, we're allowing foreign owners. See, Canada will not allow foreign ownership of residential housing. Now, these people are coming into the country, jacking up the price of house, houses. The more people who want the same property, the more the price goes through the roof. But as I speak to you, there are thousands and thousands of homes with which are not occupied, that's the first thing, or with empty bedrooms. Take the ones that aren't occupied. I believe that any owner who has a house that is not occupied should be taxed. There's the first thing. And many of these people, I was at the Gold Coast at the weekend and I drew the point, I was at a function, I, I had a function, this side of the river. And I just said to the guests, dark came, look at all those houses over there, there's not a light on. They're owned by foreigners. They're owned by foreigners. Just bring them in, invest them. Shoves the price up so that the young person can't afford it. So there should be a tax on all homes that are not occupied. But at the end of the day, this thing about housing, you know, we're going to build, what, 3 million homes in, 3 million homes, uh, 3,000, 3, how many, 30,000 homes in, yeah. in, in five years or something. It goes nowhere near meeting the demand. That well, most, also there's a question of supply, yep. question of supply. We've got governments here with regulations coming through your uh, three your ears and as the shelters of the, here have said, uh, all these all these demands and dictates by government make it absolutely impossible. And that's why uh, builders in the construction industry are going broke at the rate of knots. So there are fewer and fewer people available, fewer and fewer tradesmen to do the job. You could say we need 500,000 homes. We don't have the tradesmen. We don't have the expertise to do it. Yeah. Since when did the government... Since when was the government in the business of building houses anyway? Absolutely correct. Get out Alan, of our road. Exactly, mm. Alan. One of the reasons we love you here is you talk, you say it like it is. <laughs> now let's go to the next uh, next sample from your show. Uh, this is Alan saying, describing politicians the way ordinary people describe them in the front bar of every pub in the nation. Let's have a listen. The place is being run by tossers. A tosser is defined as an obnoxious person. So speaking of tossers, if Bowen and co think that the farmers are going to be a pushover and will surrender their agricultural land to transmission lines, wind farms and solar farms, the arrogant and incompetent Bowen will need to think again. I have to point out, these, all these grabs are from our, from Alan's shows and various other shows on ADH.TV, which you can see on our website, uh, watch on demand or download our app and uh, watch them wherever you go. Now, Alan, that was part of your introduction to an interview with Riverina farmer James Gooden, champion bloke by the look of it. He is a spokesman for the growing protest movement across uh, New South Wales and Victoria and, and uh, as far up as Queensland who was on your show on Wednesday, he was admirably calm and restrained about what the government was doing mm. to farmers. Alan, but I, I, I sense that the attitude on the ground out in the bush is red hot. Oh, very red hot. See, see, Fred, not only do you have the wind... It's easy to trot these words off wind farms, solar farms. Do you know what that means? I mean, it means large tracts of agricultural land are being taken up with these bloody things blowing around and around and killing birds and everybody. <laughs> and Nick Cater here at ADH has done a magnificent job. Uh, to see those pictures that Nick had, and you can get this by just checking Nick Cater on ADH, just have a look at these turbines, just one wing of the turbine 
one wing of these turbines. Yeah, going down the Hume Highway. Going down the Hume Highway. I mean, you've never seen anything so grotesque. Yeah. So there are wind turbine farms, there are solar farms, and then they're saying, oh, Bowen, are we going to generate this electricity thousands of miles from the grid? And what we'll do to get it to the grid? Well, we'll compulsorily acquire agricultural land so that we can put transmission lines from where the solar power is, which I might add currently is about 30% of the nation's capacity, 30%. Yeah. We will never, ever, 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 ever be able to power this nation on renewable energy, never. And that's a hoax, it's a lie, and it, it's hysteria, and we've got to wake up to all of this. And and I just come back to my point, which I never cease to make, and most probably bore people stupid making it, but the problem allegedly is carbon dioxide. That's, yeah. why, we, that's why we don't want coal-fired power or gas. It's carbon dioxide. See, they won't tell you this. They call it about carbon, decarbonisation. It's got nothing to do with carbon. This is carbon dioxide. They're two entirely different components. This is a trace gas. It occupies 0.04% of the atmosphere. Zero Carbon dioxide. If you said to a grade six kid, see all this world around you, atmosphere in this room where I'm broadcasting with Fred outside, okay, in it, carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere. But human beings constitute only 3%. Three, 97% occurs naturally, whether it might be volcanoes, the ocean or whatever, but 3% are human beings. And of that little old Australia is 1.3%. So we're one3 of 3% of 0.04%. Where do you put in the decimal point? <laughs> now, as a result of this, we've got this national economic suicide note. We're demonising coal and gas. We've got a stack of it. We're the most productive resource country in the world, resource-rich, and that's what made us and gave us our wealth and our prosperity that we enjoy today. And as Madeleine King, she's the hope of the side, make her the leader of the Labor Party, she gave a speech at a Bush summit last week, which I'm sure Bowen and co wouldn't have approved of, and she talked about the value of our resource industries in export terms as $500 billion. $500 billion. Bowen's on a trip to Asia two weeks ago, talking to Japan and South Korea and these people, telling them we will be a regular supplier and reliable supplier of energy, but it'll be renewable energy? What? Yeah. And as a result, Japan, the Prime Minister Kushida, has taken off to the Middle East to sign up another supplier for the kind of energy because they're in, in energy deficit. So here we've now got this bloke saying, oh, we're going to get it with wind, we're going to get it with solar, and you farmers out there will compulsorily acquire large tracts of agricultural land to build transmission lines. Well, I'm saying to you, Dopey Bowen, <laughs> you don't know farmers, mate. My old man was a farmer. You wouldn't last two minutes with this mob. It's not going to happen. Well, James Gooden on your show said that if you if you drew up the agricultural land in Australia and then overlaid on top of it where Bowen wants to put all these solar mm. farms, these transmission lines and windmills, mm. it's the same land. People are mistaken. People in the cities don't realise there isn't an unlimited amount of yeah. agricultural land in Australia. Mm. So well, that has created... Well, this is what Madeleine King said. Yeah. She, Madeleine King, Labor, Resources Minister, marvellous, West Australian, see? Yeah. She knows the scene. Yeah, I'm and one of And she said people on, people on the eastern seaboard don't understand where their yeah. wealth comes from. Yeah. They don't understand where their cost of living is either down or up as a result of the price of energy. Madeleine King, Bowen is... See, what our viewers have got to understand is simple. This mob got 32% of the vote at the election. 67.5% of Australia did not vote for Bowen or Albanese or anybody else. 
What entitlement have they got to believe that they have a mandate to impose this stuff simply because they got a few preferences from the Greens and the Teals and all the rest of it? But they got 32% of the primary vote. We are heading for the cliff. Peter Dutton should say, we're not going over the energy cliff with you lot. We are not. And I'll tell you what, they'd be cheering from the rafters. Well, James Gooden and his protest movement are certainly saying mm-hmm. that, and they seem like a pretty unified uh, bunch. They are, but, I mean, they, you know, it's a bit equivocating. We don't want to upset anybody and we don't, we're not yeah. going to be political about it. Oh, yeah. what absolute rubbish. This is politics, I can tell you. There is a massive conflict between the interests of the farmer, the well-being of the farmer, and, you see, if it's carbon dioxide, which and I won't surrender to this argument, that we've got to demonise carbon dioxide. I won't surrender to it. So I don't agree with any of this stuff. But if it were carbon dioxide, what has to be understood is that electricity production only is responsible for 32% of all carbon dioxide emissions, 32%. Transport is responsible for 18 and and, and agriculture for 14. So what Bowen is virtually saying is you're going to have to stop every time a cow breaks wind, you're producing methane, which is a carbon dioxide component, and they're saying, well, you're going to have to reduce your cattle herd by 33%. If transport's 18%, what are we going to do? Take the planes out of the sky? Take the trucks off the road? Take the car? Oh, no, no, no. We'll force you to buy an electric vehicle. Oh, I see. And we'll we'll charge the electric vehicle at Coffs Harbour. But when we get to Coffs Harbour, there are 10 others queued up at the charging station. Yeah. Oh, yes, well, I'll wait around for another five hours. Yeah, this yeah. is madness on steroids. Well, here's another aspect of this, Alan, that you might not have encountered yet. And Nick Cater, our esteemed colleague, has. He's, uh, he's been, like, as you said earlier, he's been leading the nation in covering the effects of wind farms around Australia. And he's found them causing divisions in rural communities. Let's have a listen. Last week, I went back to Rye Park near Yass in New South Wales, where the largest wind turbine development in, in, the, in the state is under construction. It's this once close-knit sheep farming town has split into two tribes. Former friends are no longer on speaking terms. Rye Park is divided between those who've chosen to take the money from the developer, Tilt Energy, and those who've either not been offered compensation or been refused. Those who accept the money are obliged to sign onerous non-disclosure agreements which help fuel rumour and resentment. They're creating scars that are impossible to heal. Alan, sometimes you think this is all deliberate, don't you? Well, you see, this is the strategy. They will buy off opposition. So as we speak to you, as I speak to you tonight, uh, what people on the eastern seaboard don't understand, drought has taken hold of large tracts of Australia west of the Great Dividing Range. And these farmers are dedicated people and they're multi-generational, so they may be the third, fourth or fifth generation. They're in the middle of drought. The bank's banging on their door. And this mob, with our money, come in and bribe them, pay them money to put up wind turbines, you see. So eventually, if this goes on, you know, the agricultural well-being of our country, another industry, we've already lost manufacturing. (laughs) According to Bowen, we'll lose the resource industry, export income, and this is agriculture. Now, the concern, you see, this is the same with the voice, and there's an analogy here with the voice. So last week we had... The NRL, the National Rugby League. Now, they're rich. They've got a stack a day at the National Rugby League. And Bowen says, uh, Albanese says, I'll give you $7 million to promote rugby league in the Pacific Islands. 
Now, I'm all for the Pacific Islands and they have families there who depend on their talented sons making money here and repatriating it to keep the family going in the Pacific Islands. I'm all in favour of that. But, of course, there's a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. So we'll give you the $7 million and then you'll go out there and you'll advocate for the yes vote. You see? Now, I thought there was an ICAC and all the rest of it to go into these things. Is this corrupt behaviour? You've got Alan Joyce says, listen, we'll put yes on the outside of... Vote yes on the outside of our planes. Oh, I see. And what will we get in return? Oh, the government will stop Qatar Airlines from having an increased stake in the Australian industry. And throw, throw in a membership to the Chairman's Lounge that, for a, all that, as a tip. Yes, you see. So in other words, you know, if, if the average Joe in the street did this, I yeah, mean, we've currently got a story here in New South Wales, which I think is ridiculous. Joe Hale, I'm the Transport Minister has said, I want Josh Murray as my departmental head. Well, she's entitled to say that. She's the minister. She's the minister. They're saying, oh, no, no, no. Oh, how many phone calls were made here? This has got to go to ICAC. There's a problem. I mean, there's no problem to me, but if there is a problem, well, is it rugby league and there's a Qantas Airlines, are they going to air ICAC? You know, Rio Tinto are rearing up here. They're the same. They're tipping money in, Rio Tinto. Now, when, the, when push turns to shove in the mining industry and taxes on the mining industry... Mm. Rio Tinto at the door, Prime Minister. Yeah. Remember that two million we gave you for the S yes campaign. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I want to return to that uh, that quid pro quo in a minute in relation to the Matildas. This yes. is going to make you smile. But yes. we, let's come back to that, Alan. I just want to I just want to cut to a little uh, a little grab from my show on Monday yes. night. Uh, this is a part of the culture war that is for most people it's in a kind of hiatus at the moment, but it's not for a Brisbane woman called Sal Grover who has been plunged into a legal fight that could go all the way to the High Court and she's having to crowdfund it. She's a young mum, small businesswoman, and she's been plunged into this absolute dystopian nightmare. Let's have a listen to uh, what she said on my show on Monday night. Because I know I'm right. Mm. I know that no man is a woman. I know that biological sex exists. It's binary. No human being can change their sex. No man is a woman. I know I'm right on this. But the, that tiny percent of time when it, the magnitude of it hits you, it's because you go, wait, there are really powerful institutions that are saying otherwise, and they're lying. But that, that lie is so powerful, and some people really need it to be true. So Sal Grover started an app for women, and it was a chat group, chat room for women. And a, a bloke who thinks he's a woman applied. He was His application was rejected. And... Uh, <clears throat> Through a, a, a variety of legal manoeuvres, it went via the uh, a sort of application of the Human Rights Commission, and we all know about them. And it's now wound up, uh, I believe it's in the federal court at the moment, and the bloke has some pretty serious legal firepower behind him working, for, uh, working gratis. And so Sal Grover, all she wanted to do was start an app where women could talk about stuff together has found herself having to defend something that she says and some of her legal team say could go all the way to the high court. Mm. She's a mum. She she found out this she found this out when she was 15 weeks pregnant. The kids is now a year old, I think. She it's going to consume her life. It consumes her every mm. day. It's going to consume her life for the next 2 years. Mm. This uh, is outrageous. Yeah, and all she's saying is that a woman and a man can't be a woman. Look, there are, it, it is outrageous. And you see, there's no lead, we've got no leadership about any of this. 
No one's prepared to open their trap. Look, there are people out there, as you and I know, who feel that I'm a man in a woman's body. I understand that. And there are people who think I'm a woman in a man's body. And we have every support and sympathy and understanding for those people. And we would want them to have a comfortable, responsible life and be not discriminated against in any way. But that's a separate thing from saying that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. It can't, it, it's just, that is a nonsense argument. And here is a woman, all she wanted to have a chat show and have a yard about women, and she denied access to a man who is a person who is a biological man. That is her entitlement. It's yep. like this business about clubs. Should we have all men's clubs? Should we have all women's clubs? You want to set up an all women's club? What's wrong with that? Yeah. All yeah. men's club, that's men wrong and with women, that. Men and women are different. Absolutely. You yeah. know, but oh, well, we might have clubs with men and women together. Well, that's yeah. fine too. Exactly. But this notion that minorities can actually impose their view on the majority is where it all gets very, very tricky. And I think there is no leadership. I like it. There are yes, girls, right. yeah. I won't name a high school here. There's a high school here in Sydney where they have kitty litter in the girls' toilet for the girls who think they're cats. Now, someone responsible adult yeah. has got to say to these girls, hang on a minute, yeah. I'm your teacher, where are the parents? This is not since the girl comes to school with a hole in her dress because yeah. that's where the tail goes. Oh, dear man. Now, who was going to stand up against this? And this is a crisis in leadership. Now, as you know, this happened recently in England and one of the girls, it, it was in Surrey, one of the girls was smart enough to take a mobile phone out and she recorded the teacher. When one girl objected to this other girl saying that she was a boy or a cat, now she said she was a cat, and this girl said, hang on, you've got to be stupid. You're not a cat, you're a girl. And the teacher said, that's a disgraceful thing to say. If she wants to be a cat, she can be a cat. Well, of course, the girl was smart enough to to, to uh, record all this, yeah. and it went viral everywhere, and there's anger that well, this it is... it went one. viral because people know this is stupid, but our mm. leaders refuse to say well, so. Yeah, say now, the, so. I mean, this this case involving Sal Grover, mm. what it boils down to, Alan, is whose rights prevail? A man who thinks he's a woman, we sympathise with him, we think mm. he should leave mm. his be lead his best life. We don't want to discriminate, but do his rights to claim to be a woman prevail over... Women who are women. Cut. And this is good. Alan, this is mm. going to go all the way to the High Court. We're going to have the most learned intellectual yeah. lawyers in the nation mm. discussing Wasting time absurdities. And money. But this is what I don't understand. The Liberal Party are in opposition all over Australia. These issues come up every day, which are just the most fertile ground to capture public support. Absolutely. Why aren't they out there in the ring yeah. saying, look, you vote for me, this won't happen in a country that I lead? Yep. Full stop. And and that I mean that clamour to support. It's yep. like this Marcia Langton saying, Oh, if you vote no, there'll be no more welcome to country. <laughs> They're saying, get me to the ballot box tomorrow. Well, listeners listeners, fasten your seatbelts because Alan and I, I think Alan and I are gonna vehemently disagree on this next one. This is uh, about the Matildas. Let's have a listen. Uh, but tonight is a special night for Australia. The Sydney's Olympic Stadium is packed for the big fo football women's semi-final between England and Australia. You know all that. But tens of thousands around Australia will be watching. Governments sensibly have opened infrastructure facilities so that people can share the electric atmosphere of the evening. Now, the New South Wales government has opened two big stadia because the match is a sellout and people have filled the Western Sydney Stadium, which is in Parramatta, and the Sydney Football Stadium in Moorpark. This World Cup 
has been a success beyond any reasonable expectation. 1.75 million tickets have been sold across 64 games, the most successful in the tournament's history. Tonight marks the first time the Australian team has progressed to the semi-final of a FIFA Women's World Cup. The Swedish coach of Australia, Tony Gustafsson, can't praise him enough. He's done a splendid job, lifting not just the spirits of the Matildas, but at the same time lifting the spirits of a nation. The whole nation was watching. People who didn't know anything about soccer or women's soccer were going nuts and screaming at the TV screen. Now, Alan, I can't, I, I can't criticise the girls. They are absolutely living their dream and uh, playing magnificently by women's soccer standards. But I've got to say that I think the Women's World Cup being held in uh, Australia and New Zealand is evidence that modern mainstream sport is bread and circuses. Alan's staring at me with that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Look, uh, I thought you were going to criticise Tony Gustafsson and I think... No, I wasn't going to do that. No. Right. Let, well, let me elaborate. I did object, elaborate. I did object to the criticism of Ellie Carpenter and I yeah. think, look, this England team... We won, before we come to your bread and circuses, okay. we won to, we won a, they call it a friendly game against England at the beginning of the year, uh, beat them 2-0. But prior to that, this England team that you saw the other night was unbeaten for 30 matches. Now, I made a comment further on in that uh, editorial piece that I did the other night. I made the comment to watch the England team pass. Their passing is unbelievable. And in the tournament, they'd made more than 1,000 passes than had the Australian girls. And their passing the other night was electrifying. They were simply too good, plus the fact that our girls, I think, played their grand final against France. I mean, they went for 120 minutes up and down that field. Mm. And then the energy uh, of, of the penalty shootout. So I, it annoyed me that someone criticised Ellie Carpenter because she made a mistake in defence. Now, coming back to bread and circuses... Uh, I think the issue that disproves your theory, Fred, if I may say so, is the fact that in this dreary world of the voice and of energy policy and the circumstance you're talking about, gender dysphoria here, people were looking for a release and they got it. There were 7 million watched this thing on TV. I guarantee on, on, uh, on which night was it? Saturday night. I guarantee five of them knew nothing about soccer. <laughs> but it gave them this beautiful release and they felt involved outside themselves with something else. And I think that's the beautiful thing about sport when it's played well, as it was with these girls. And Sam Kerr, I don't know how long she hadn't played, ages since she'd played, she fired that shot into the net like a shot out of a gun. Amazing. This is so, the equaliser from, yeah, from, when Tuesday, got to the from one Wednesday night. Yeah. So, you know, if bread and circuses, I don't mind a bit of bread and I quite like a circus, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I think in the current environment that we live in where people face all sorts of difficulties, this was a wonderful therapeutic release. Well, that's a good way of looking at it. Bread and Circuses was coined by the uh, Roman, Roman poet oh, Juvenal. Yeah. And his, the point he made was that people who abdicate from their responsibility to participate in, in politics will be distracted by uh, ephemeral entertainment like Bread and Circuses. That was his point. Mm. And I think... We needed the, the, some distraction, oh, well, we, we Well, we do, Alan, that's true. But we also need to step up to the plate. Well, I mean, you and I know, over, you yeah. and I know, step up to the plate. It's a good sporting analogy. Yeah. Um, but you and I know 
how drastic the situation is in Australia mm. at the moment. And because We're, it's drastic, this was a wonderful release. Yes. And it was just a beautiful moment. Now, well, true, but look at the fact that we've got ordinary politicians, many of whom you wouldn't employ. Well, that's right. But look at the, these are the same people who are latching on yes. to the Matildas. Well, Sam Kerr didn't miss them. Put your money where your mouth is, she said to Alba. Alba's out there with the thing around his neck. Look, I'll tell you a story about Alba, a nice bloke, Alba. Yeah. But if he makes a speech anywhere, he says there are three things coursed through his blood. Three things. The Labor Party, South Sydney, Rugby League and the Catholic Church. Okay, we'll tick him for the Labor Party. Well, George Piggins and I were at South Sydney when it was gone. And on our own, with the help of Nolene and Norm Lipson and a handful of people, and I went to Kerry Packard to get 750000 to try and keep South Sydney afloat, we fought pro bono in the courts to have them reinstated. I never, ever saw Albo once, ever. And I could name others as well who now sort of claim to be South Sydney supporters. Then, of course, the Catholic Church courses through his blood. Well, one of the great Catholic figures, intellectual figures in this country was George Pell. His funeral was here and Albo didn't attend. So your point about the soccer is exactly analogous with that. They want to cash in. They want to climb on the bandwagon. Yep. But when it comes to saying grassroots sport is abandoned, and I might add the arts as well, mm. I tried. I don't lose too many battles when I decide to fight, I have to tell you, but I've been on the trust out here at the Sydney Cricket Ground for oh, the longest in history, 35 years or something. And when we we fought alone, as you know, and Gladys didn't abandon the ship, but there were plenty of people who said the renovation and reconstruction of Allianz Stadium mustn't go ahead, we'll rip up the contract. And that's when Daly said to me, the leader of the opposition, and I'll sack you when I get there. And I said, well, I might get there first. So he was sacked. He was sacked and uh, Perrottet won the, uh, Gladys won the election. Now, but I tried to say to Gladys, now, listen, the arts are short of money. And we can't keep shelling money out, put a roof on this thing, and we can have concerts here for 40,000 people and the arts community will have money forever and a day. Oh, no. For a piddling 100,000, 100 million to get a thing on the roof, 100 million worried about the AAA credit rating, we've got a magnificent stadium out there which is subject to the vulnerabilities of the weather. Now, you know, this is my point. These people really are very, very short-sighted. Now, here we are. The Matildas have been beaten. We've quickly abandoned them. Forget them. Exactly. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. Move did, on. Did, did, did Football Australia get their half a billion? Yeah. Did they? I don't, I, know. I don't know. I mean, they, well, they, I they hit the government up. I don't know, but we're not talking they... about Matildas today. No, no one knows about it. Because <laughs> well, Sam says stick some money up. Hey? <laughs> eh? Yeah. But, Mark, before I – we will move on after I make this point. But the, the same people – who were latching on to the Matildas are the same people who would wish that we forget that there is a housing crisis, that mm. the country was locked down for two years under COVID, mm. that uh, climate change is uh, actually a hoax and so on and so on. I mean, you say it was a wonderful, you know, sort of release, therapeutic, a therapeutic thing, yeah. moment, but as far if you're in power, it's like, oh, good, they're distracted today. Mm. We, it the is purpose of ADH yes. and these sorts of programs don't allow them to get away with being distracted. Indeed, and indeed. And that's why the numbers to ADH continue to increase. We're not woke here. Yep. All right. Well, let's finish on a high note, Alan. It's the uh, it's the rapid demise of the voice to parliament. It's actually become a bit of a joke, I think, now. Um, uh, well, notwithstanding the fact that the Yes campaign may have some pretty uh, 
with some aces up its sleeve between now and whenever that we're going to have this mm. stupid election. The biggest ace that thinks it has a sleeve is our money. Yep. Now, I just say to, 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 to listeners here, um, I sense a major problem. Firstly, why haven't we been told the, the date of this referendum? Why don't we know when it's on? Everyone says, oh, it'll be October 15. Well, who said it's October 15? If that's a Saturday, I don't know what October 15. Why haven't we been told? I'll tell you why we haven't been told. Because he's on thin ice and he hopes that he can, time will save him. Now, where this thing is going to happen is, and get ready for it and be ready, uh, they've got millions of dollars allocated to the S campaign and they'll spend it on social media platforms. Now, it is a vanity to imagine that people are listening to Alan Jones and Fred Paul or reading the Sydney Morning Herald or the Daily Telegraph. Or, no, no, they are but not in the numbers where they get it all off their phone here and they're watching whatever, and they're going to go to that platform. They can propagate and, and, and prosecute as many lies as they like with our money, and that's the mob they're pitching to, the 18s to the 35-year-olds, and that's where this is at risk. I don't think, I don't think the polls, there's no room for complacency here. What Peter Dutton should say is, I don't want any detail. I mean, there was Albanese saying he hadn't even read this Uluru statement. Mm. But I don't want any detail. We do not want a race-based change to the Constitution. It's as simple as that. Now, the great John Howard, who actually said the notion of a treaty is laughable, mm. that a nation should make a treaty with a component of that nation. But Lydia Thorpe is my hero. She's the only one telling the truth. She said, we don't want a voice. We want a treaty. We want compensation. She yes. said, that's, and that's what they're about reparation and compensation. Marcia Langton has said that. This bloke Mayo has said that. Albo, hang on, he told us he'd reduce power, uh, energy prices. Are we going to believe him on any of this stuff? So they're only, he's desperate now and this is what he's going to do, spend taxpayers' money to promote the campaign on social media. And, and you're right, but at the same time, you know, we, we tendency to think, oh, you know, it's all beat. No, 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 no. We give up the fight, they'll step in the ring and throw a few left hooks and right hooks. So we've got to be alert. This cannot go ahead. This is the most device. Anthony Albanese, decent sort of bloke from the suburbs of Marrickville or Matraville, wherever he comes from, Marrickville, I mean, has promoted something which has divided the nation at a time when he's trying to pretend we're unifying the nation. But you see, there's a whole group of people out there who don't listen to you, don't listen to me, don't read the stuff who think, oh, you know, why? There's quite nothing wrong with this, is it? Just... It's a nice thing. I thought they were actually. I thought they were there already. Shouldn't yeah. they? This is not, what are they going on about here? I don't know anything about it, but it sounds okay to me. Tickets. Let's let's have a little uh, listen to uh, a couple of grabs from your show during mm. the week, where mm. you, I think you uh, put this in the proper context. Let's have Thank a listen. You. So Al, Albo becomes the salesman for the Voice, which prompts the question: If the Voice goes under, what happens to Albo? The same punter is not impressed at talk of a public holiday when complaints about electricity prices have skyrocketed by 66% in New South Wales. But Labor told us every time they opened their mouths at the last election, they would deliver electricity price reductions of $275 per household by 2025. Like a lot of things out of the mouths of politicians, it was a hoax. But what do you call it when your own Prime Minister won't come clean on details of the voice and makes promises to win an election about energy prices that can't be delivered. In the corporate world, such a person would be in the dock for falsely representing a product. It's time voters got better memories and acted at the ballot box in a way that sends a simple message 
that this deceptive behaviour won't be tolerated. Remember one thing, we the voters are the masters. The pumped up, self-important, preening politicians are our servants. You tell it like it is, True. Alan. Yeah, there's two things True. there. Al- uh, Albo is fighting for his political yes, survival is. on the on this issue. I mean, mm. what a hill to die mm. on. And the other is the the fundamental. We've got to keep reminding ourselves: we are the masters. We are. They work they for us. They're representing us. Yep. That's why we vote. Though there's 27 million people, 26 million people in this country. We can't fit them all into Parliament House. So we said 150 on our behalf. We're the masters. They're the servants. They're out there doing things consistent with their own ideological stupidity. I think Bowen is the most dangerous politician this country's seen since World War II. Uh, Alba doesn't know enough to be able to argue with him. And Bowen gets up there sort of preening himself on this energy stuff. And I, I really object. Madeleine King says, this thing of $500 billion in export income, and we're going to prejudice that by demonising coal and gas, which are the source source of all our productive strength over many, many years. And I don't subscribe to this notion that carbon dioxide is the problem and I will never yield to that. I'm sick of hoaxes and I'm sick of hysteria and alarmism. We had it in coronavirus. I'll be talking about some of this stuff at the CPAC conference on Sunday or Saturday, whenever it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what, well, I was going to end on that actually. Mm. Uh, what are you looking forward to about CPAC, Alan? What am I going to do? What, what are you looking forward to? Well, well, what am I looking forward to? Well, I suppose, uh, Fred, without anticipating what I'm going to say, uh, I will express, I think, undiluted surprise that there are a thousand people there because I thought there were only about four or five genuine conservatives left in the country. <laughs> so, and none of them, in, very few of them in Parliament. Well, well yes. Matt Canavan is, and yep. Alex Antich is, and yep. you know, it's a couple of them like that. But Jared there's not Rennick. many. Jared Rennick. Not many. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, and Corey Bernardi left. So, yep. it surprises me, but. If you want to really understand the failure of the conservative forces, just have a look at the map of Australia. Labor runs the show. Why? Mm. We surrendered. We surrendered. And what I'll be saying on Saturday afternoon is sometimes we lose not because we're beaten but because we didn't fight and we've got to fight on our hands. As you always say, you've got to step in the ring, Mm. Alan. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on Parting Shots, Alan. What wonderful. Quickly. Just quick. Yeah, it did. Uh, and before we go, I'll just have to say uh, if you can't make it to CPAC in Sydney tomorrow and Sunday, you can watch it live right here on ADH.TV. Mm. Well, I'm on tomorrow. I think I don't know what time, quarter to five or something. Yeah. Well, I'll see you down there, Alan. <laughs> I'll have my vote no cap on. <laughs> you wouldn't want to walk into that room with a vote yes <laughs> yeah, cap. <laughs> I've got to say thank you to Charles in the control room and Martina for cutting the clips together. And thank you, Alan. It's always an honour to work with you. Thank you for thanking Charles and Martina. Yes. They do wonderful work, don't they? They do. And so does Jack. Wherever Jack is, I don't know. But young Jack, these are young people here who do a fantastic job to bring this product to you. And they are the architects, basically, of CPAC tomorrow. Yes, indeed. So hopefully we'll see you all down there. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners. I'll talk to you next week.